Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And we are, we are starting a new sermon series this week uh, that, is, that is going to take us through the next 10 weeks. Uh, and it is going to be in Galatians chapter 5. And we're specifically going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And so we've, uh, our, our wonderful communications director, Anna, has put together these, these sermon guides for you as well. They're just kind of simple guides. They're available to you out in the Narthex, which is the four-year area out there, also online to download. And uh, there's places to take notes. There's places for simple discussion questions to be able to chat through things with your family at home. The kids are learning about this same thing in children's liturgy uh, right now as well. And so this is a great way for you to be able to think through these things uh, as well. So that is available to you. So we're going to be in Galatians 5 today, but it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. We're actually going to start in Psalm chapter 1 uh, or Psalm 1 if you want to head there first. So I have, uh, I have a garden behind my house. Uh, I've tried many times over the years to have a garden uh, with varying degrees of success. The first garden I ever tried to have, we lived in, uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And in Fayetteville, it's all sand. Everything is, everything is sand. And so, so me, not knowing anything about gardening at all, said, I want to, I want to have a garden. Kind of took a, took a hoe, went outside, scraped up all of the centipede grass that we have out there, if you know what that is. And, uh, and, uh, and so it had a little sand pit. Um, and I made little mounds of sand, and I put seeds in it and went, garden. Right there it is. Um, and... Uh, it was unsuccessful. Uh, we, the radishes seem to do okay because they tend to like grow in anything. Um, but, uh, but outside of radishes, that was about it. We had some little spindly things that were supposed to be cucumbers. It just didn't work uh, really at all. And so um, we ended up selling that house, moving to a different place, not because of the garden, for other reasons, um, different, different part of town. Uh, and, uh, and so I tried it again there. Same tactics. Very similar results. Um, there was there were really no uh, no vegetable medleys coming out of my uh, of my garden really at all. We we left uh, Fayetteville, moved down to Atlanta for about seven years, and I gave it up for about seven years. One, we started having kids, and you know how that goes, right? Like that just sort of takes up all your time everywhere. Um, but uh, but then we moved up here about five years ago, and I had two things going for me moving up here. Um, it, Three, if you count time during the pandemic, but we won't count that. Um, so the so the other two things I had one was was Lena Van Wyke. Um, and uh, because Lena, if you don't know Lena, Lena was our farm director for a long time here at, uh, at, at the church, and she, uh, she helped me to know what to do. And when I told her about my, I'm going to scrape sand in a pile and stick a seed in it, she went. Oh, sweetheart, right? Like, uh, 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 that's, uh, that's not how this works, right? And she talked to me about amending the soil and getting it prepared. And there's, she's like, you can have my soil recipe. And I went, 
a what? There's a recipe for soy? How does any of that work? Um, and so, uh, so I had Lena, and then I had YouTube, right? And, uh, and so I watched a ton of YouTube videos. Ended up building three raised beds in my backyard, amending all of the soil. Built a, uh, a PVC watering grid uh, that is connected to uh, a sensor that's connected to Alexa. And so I can water my garden by my voice now. And Alexa checks the weather. And if it's going to rain that day, does not water uh, that day. That's where we are at this point. I've built trellises. I've learned how to fertilize. Um, and, uh, and all of a sudden, we've got a lot of vegetables. Uh, we started to learn how to can so we can put things in jars in the, in the pantry. We have vegetables all over the place. But here's the thing. This, this is a hobby for me. My family, thank the Lord, has not been dependent upon my ability to produce vegetables in order to eat. Um, I have large children, um, and they would, their growth would have been stunted quite significantly um, uh, based on my gardening skills. So, so you can see why, because most of history and even most of the world, they're not quite so separated from the production of food and, uh, and, their, uh, and their daily existence in the same way that, that we tend to be. Um, and so agriculture and farming and growing and hunting and fishing and gathering, that's a major part of, of life. And survival uh, is, is linked to the ability to have abundance in these things. So, so from the earliest times, people all over the world have asked very similar questions about life and about the source of life. Where does it come from? Uh, we need more vegetables or we need to have success in fishing. How, how does that kind of physical flourishing come from uh, and what what spiritual forces exist that, that shape those sort of things? How do I engage in the world to, uh, to, to see more of that flourishing? But then you can also see easily how, how this not only applies to this idea of flourishing and bearing fruit, then not only applies to actual fruit and vegetables, but then is applied easily to our lives themselves. When, when, when our survival is a little more assured, now we ask about flourishing. Where, how do, what, what, should, what kind of fruit, metaphorically, should I be bearing in my life to know happiness, fulfillment? Uh, what, what is the purpose of why I exist? All of these sort of questions are the same ancient questions that have been asked throughout time and we still ask today. Whether we know we're asking them or not, right? Is, is goodness and righteousness uh, and, uh, and flourishing in life, is it being an urbanite and, and, with, and a social activist? Or is it being, I'm going to live off-grid with a low-carbon footprint and just be very filled with mindfulness, right? Like, which is it? Or is it... Uh, is it bearing well-rounded children who study lots of things and play lots of sports and enjoy suburbia? Or what, what is life and where is flourishing in that? And what is a good person? And what is a righteous person? And what should we be? The, as Christians, we believe that we don't have to figure all of this out on our own. The purpose of existence itself and what we should be in light of existence. As Christians, we believe that God has revealed himself as the source of life and flourishing 
Uh, and, w- and we see in his scripture uh, th- that he reveals himself in this way. In fact, the entire story of the Bible is framed on either side. It begins with creation in a garden. And at the end, in Revelation, when Jesus comes back and all things are made new and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and it describes the new heaven, it describes a garden. So the whole story is framed in this idea of flourishing. And you can see how it connects with our basic needs of food and, uh, and what we need plants to produce, and then looking at ourselves and say, what are we to produce as well, even beyond just survival, to flourishing itself. So the Old Testament then outlines this idea. We see this metaphor a lot. For instance, we see in Psalm chapter 1, or Psalm 1, that, that this, this book that is about the relationship of God with, with man and man with God, uh, and talks a lot about his laws and his words, starts with a metaphor. It says that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sit, sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on his law or his word day and night. He's saying this, this is where the flourishing comes from. And the metaphor comes in here. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So here's this powerful metaphor. You can picture a tree planted by this flowing river. And even if drought conditions come, that, uh, that its roots are sunk deep in this river that is stable and dependable and not going anywhere. So it doesn't have to fear its situations. This is life and flourishing. My leaves won't wither because my roots are sunk deep in the river. Or the metaphor then is, as life is difficult, as there's places of, that we're in pain or suffering or figuring things out, that we don't dry up either because we are rooted in the unchanging word of God, the truth of how God has shown us uh, things to be real and to actually function and to bring joy and flourishing in our lives. So we see this as a deep metaphor uh, throughout the scripture. It, the scripture moves on from there to, if, you, if you're in Psalm 1, turn over to Psalm 80. And what you're going to see in Psalm 80 is that this idea of a plant or a vine is, uh, is applied to the people of Israel. So the people of Israel, God's people, God's chosen people who are the members of his covenant, they are called a vine. So it says this in Psalm 80, uh, dropping down to verse 8. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt and you drove out the nations and planted it. So that verse summarizes the books of Exodus and Joshua, where God brought out Israel out from under slavery and oppression in Egypt, brought them into a new land, drove out the the nations that were there before them, and cleared it out and planted Israel like a vine. It says, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. 
this flourishing language again. The mountains were covered with its shade, its mighty, the mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So you can see this idea, God has done this for his, uh, for his people. Israel is a flourishing vine bearing fruit. And we'll see, too, that the image goes a little further, that it's, the image becomes that of a vineyard, a walled vineyard, where God's protection is around the vineyard so that these walls keep out things like wild pigs from coming in and eating all the grapes or uh, thieves who would break in and steal it, that God's protection is around them uh, and that they are flourishing inside those walls. Why this image of the vine? Why, why is this the metaphor? It's important because this is not just about the fruit itself. Here he talks about vine even before he talks about any kind of fruit. Because a vine, is, a vine bears fruit and the fruit must remain connected to the vine in order to grow. So it's not just about the vine. It's not just about the fruit. It's about the fruit being connected to the vine. So we grew cantaloupes for the first time this year, um, and so melons tend to spread out. They have lots of, lots of uh, branches that, that, uh, that flow out, and, uh, and they were beautiful, and we got one, and we ate it, and it was, that's good eating right there. Fresh cantaloupe out of the garden. It's nothing like you buy in the store. All right? Put a little salt on it if you want. It's a little less healthy, but it's eat better. And, uh, uh, and so we ate a couple of them. So these vines... Um, in my backyard started to get powdery mildew. They'll get this white stuff on them that will eventually curl up the leaves and kill the vine. And so I went out there to try to trim some of the, some of the branches off that are starting to get infected with this powdery mildew. And in doing so, I accidentally broke the whole vine. I broke the whole thing, right? Uh, at this point, you're like, why are you gardening at all? Um, that uh, I'm learning, uh, and, uh, and I'm better than I used to be, um, but I broke the vine. Here I was standing in it. We probably had six to seven green cantaloupes that were growing and were so excited to eat them, and I'm holding the broken end of a vine, looking at them like, you don't know what's coming, but it's going to go bad for you at this point. Um, I killed all of them, right? I murdered all of my cantaloupes because I broke them from the vine. And you can't stick that back together again. That doesn't happen that way. And so I ended up having to pull all of them out, and they still exist. They're now in my compost pile, uh, and they are disconnected from the vine. And you know what's happening? They're rotting. They're not flourishing. They're rotting slowly because they were disconnected from the vine. And what we see happen to Israel is this same thing. They disconnect themselves from the vine. They start to, uh, they start to uh, rebel against who God is. This is the story of the Old Testament. It happens over and over again of the, un the faithfulness of God and then the unfaithfulness of his people. Um, and so, so Psalm 80 asks this question. After saying there's this walled vineyard, it, Israel is the vine, everything's great. Then it says in Psalm 80 verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit and the boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it? It says that the walls have been broken down. Isaiah actually gives us a little more insight into this as well. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah says this, 
What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So there's this contrast. Again, there should be this connection with the vine that's bearing good fruit for the glory of God and, so that, and for the service of others because other people can eat it and it's beautiful. That's what it's supposed to look like. But then there's a contrast where Psalm 1 is talking about that the scoffers are not like a tree by the river. They're like chaff. The stuff that after wheat grows and you gather it all together, it dries out a little bit. The little fluffy kind of shells that are around the outside. And they would take a fork uh, in it and throw it up in the air. And those little light shells would be blown away by the wind, leaving the good grain behind. And so it says, so, so Psalm 1 is like there's either a tree by the river with its roots sunk deep and it won't, uh, and it won't fade in drought or or those of the scoffers, the ways of the world are like wheat chaff that will just float away. Or here in Psalm 80, why are you bearing wild grapes? Why are you bearing bad fruit? You're doing something, but it's not, it's not fruit that is healthy. It's wild grapes that actually make people sick rather than are beautiful and healthy. But as is the pattern in both the Old Testament and today in our lives as well, that there's this, this pattern of rebelling against God, realizing that when we remove ourselves from God and his ways and his truth, that bad things happen. And then Israel kind of sits in those bad things. Uh, and, uh, and when it talks about boars coming in and eat it, that's a, that's a reference to Babylon and Assyria who are coming in and, and, uh, and raiding and taking them over and putting them into exile. And, uh, and, so, that we, and so they say, this is bad. Uh, so we need to repent and come back. And so this is where Psalm 80 comes from. It says this, uh, turn again, O God of hosts. I'm in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. So, so the scripture here is starting, to, is starting to take this metaphor even in another direction. Look again upon the vine that is withered. I hear this psalm coming from my compost pile, right? That's looking at they're like, why have you done this to us? You planted us with your own hand. And I'm, I'm I'm sorry, I can't fix you in the same way that God can fix the world. Um, but, uh, and so, so they, say, they say, look upon this vine again, but then it says also, and upon the son whom you have made strong. And so there's this connection with fruitfulness and, uh, and fruitfulness being not just fruit, but also, uh, also people, right? And particularly a person. There starts to be this prophecy towards the one that is going to come. Let your hand, it says in, uh, in Psalm 80, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. There starts to be this looking for not just a metaphor, like we like the vine metaphor, but now we need some tangible, we need someone to help us. Isaiah, again, answers some of this. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah the prophet gives this prophecy and he says, 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse is King David's father, the greatest king that Israel ever knows, uh, his father. And so this is saying, Jewish readers would have understood this, that, that from the line and lineage of David is going to come from the broken off stump that had to be cut off because they rebelled, there's going to be a new shoot that's going to come out. And it says, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then it says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a, as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." So there's this call in Psalm 80, restore us, raise up your son, raise him up that we may turn back to you and be restored. Isaiah is, is bringing this back around to this, this vine metaphor and saying there's going to be a new shoot, a new vine that is, going to, that is going to bring about life like Israel couldn't. And then if you fast forward about 750 years, Jesus probably about 720 years or so at this point. Jesus is born in the city of David. You might recognize that phrase, the line and lineage of David, if you've been around church on Christmas at all. Because we read Luke chapter 2, uh, where it talks about that, that, that Joseph was, when Mary was pregnant, he had to go for a census, and he traveled to Bethlehem, the city of David, because he's from the line and lineage of David. So Jesus is from the line and lineage of David, a branch from the stump of Jesse, David's family. And so here, here we have Jesus, the prophesied one, coming. And then in John 15, he says this amazing thing. And all of Israel who would have heard this, their ears would have pricked up because he says this in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Again, there's all of this Old Testament reference to Israel being the vine and that life comes through being a part of the people of God in Israel who's connected to the source of all life, God himself. And now there's a new branch, a new vine, and Jesus is saying, I am the vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so the important part here in this, again, is not just the fruit and not just the vine, but whoever abides in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says, and God the Father is the gardener, the vine dresser who takes care of all of it and cuts the powdery mildew much better um, than, than, I, than I have done, that he prunes and tends, and he's actively a part of this. And so it's not just the vine, not just the fruit, but the connection between the two, that how they are, how they are connected with each other, abide in me. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, takes this same metaphor here um, from Jesus' language, uh, and, uh, and he, throughout his letters in the New Testament, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, throughout his letters, he uses the fruit metaphor 
over and over and over again. I don't have time to go into all of them today. You can read them in Romans. You can read them in Corinthians. You can read them all over the place. Here's just a couple. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says the gospel is bearing fruit throughout the world. And then he talks about how Christians should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, that we will bear fruit in good works and knowledge of God. In Philippians chapter 1, he writes, New life in Christ bears the fruit of righteousness and sanctification. So we see this as Christians. We are connected to the vine and that by being connected to the vine who is Jesus, we bear fruit in our, in our lives. Now, one particular place where Paul talks about fruit a lot is where we're going to be for the next couple of months. Galatians chapter 5. And he says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He names nine fruits of the Spirit. And he, uh, so he is saying, he's taking this whole metaphor. If we're connected with Jesus, that there should be fruit in our lives. And what, is, what kind of fruit are we? What are we? What are we bearing? What should it look like? And the things that should come out of us as we are connected with, with the vine is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay? Hold on to that for just a second. Hold on to that, that whole concept here. Again, Old Testament is defined that, the, that a life of faith is being connected with God as the source of life, that his life flows through us and that we bear fruit. Jesus very directly says, I am the vine and you must remain in me in this intimate connection of faith and you are going to bear fruit. So hold on to that for just a minute. And let me explain a little bit more about what's happening here in Galatians. Because Paul is building on this foundation. Uh, and when Paul writes this letter, he's very angry. This is a stern letter, okay? When Paul writes Galatians, like, if you want happy Paul, read Philippians. He's always like, oh, I love you, and I'm so proud of you, and I can't wait to come and see you. In Galatians, he writes to them, in chapter 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right? He's angry. Uh, in fact, at, towards the end of the letter in Galatians chapter 6, he, he has this great line where he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. This is the ancient uh, parallel between getting a text that's written in all caps, right? And you're like, why are you yelling at me? What, why is that? Karen's mom, Karen's mom, when she sends an email, if you're watching, I love you, Bonnie, uh, that, uh, she, that she'll send an email, she'll write the whole email in caps in the subject line. And I'm like, ah, why? I just feel like you're, you're yelling at me, and I don't, know, I don't know why. So Paul used to dictate his letters to someone else who would write them for him, and he snatched the pen and the paper, the quill, right, and the parchment, and he snatched them, and he was like, look, I'm writing my own hand, because he's so angry at Galatians. Why is he so mad? He's mad because what has happened in Galatia, he helped plant this church. Galatia is in modern-day Turkey. Paul's first missionary journey went through there. He helped start the church there, and he started the church in a foundation of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that says it is not by your ability to earn righteousness or your, or your perfect obedience to God. It's not about you and your effort earning salvation and relationship with God but rather that God himself has become one of us in the person of Jesus who has earned it for you. 
And so he is the vine that is connected to, uh, to, uh, to God and to life. And your connection with him as a branch is faith and grace. The grace of Jesus and your belief in it. It's, it's more of a surrendering and a letting go and a being forgiven and a trusting in God. That's what connects us to the vine. That's that connection we talked about. It's not just the vine. It's not just the fruit. It's how are they connected. And so this connection is the big question of all religions throughout the whole world. How are we connected with the source of life that is God? And Paul is saying, at its very core, it's about grace. But some people have come into Galatia. They're called Judaizers. And these folks come in and go, yeah, grace, Jesus. That's all good. That's fine. But you need Jesus and, Jesus plus, Jesus with an addition. And so you also have to follow the entirety of the Old Testament law. And so they're teaching this, and the, and the Galatians are confused now. The most symbolic point of following the law is about circumcision. Do new Christians have to become circumcised or not? Why is this such a big deal? Well, because, uh, because circumcision was how you entered into the old covenant people of God. Because the old covenant people of God was about lineage. It was about, are you one of the children of Abraham? Abraham received all the blessings from God and is given to his children. How, are, how do you know you are one of the children? Well, and how do we remember that these blessings are passed down? Well, we're going to, we're going to mark the thing that makes more generations. Okay? Circumcision. So... If, if receiving circumcision, why this is such a big deal is because if we're receiving circumcision as a religious uh, experience, we are saying we have to follow all of the Old Testament law and we've removed from us grace and the effort and the work of Jesus. We've nullified what Christ has done on the cross. And Paul says, this is, this is everything. I'm so angry because this, is ev- this, this means everything of how do you get connected to uh, to the vine. He, he's so mad, okay? He's so mad. This is not me. This is Paul, right? In, uh, here in chapter five, he talked to those people who are talking about the importance of circumcision, and he says, I, I wish that those who unsettle you with these things would go ahead and emasculate themselves. That's what he says. It's I'm telling you, I didn't make that up. It's right there. You're like, I should read my Bible. Yes, you should. And, and this is what he says. Like, go big or go home, right? Like, if you, if you, if you say you're going to fulfill part of the law, then you've got to fulfill the whole thing, right? And, and so let's just go ahead and, uh, and really get passionate about this, right? This is how mad he is in here. And it would have shocked those readers just like it shocks us to hear that this is in here. Because he's going, you cannot overestimate the importance of what we're talking about here. How are we connected to the vine? How, how do we know life and flourishing and what kind of fruit should we be bearing? It all comes down to this. And so here's what he says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
submitting again to a yoke of slavery. Psalm 80 said, you brought a vine out of Egypt, right, where they were slaves. And he's saying, now, if you think that it's by your own effort and by your own righteousness and goodness and by your way that you're going to achieve salvation and right relationship with God, you are entering back into Egypt. You are going backwards in entering into slavery. But you have been set free from these things. Now, Paul doesn't leave it here, though, okay? So Paul is explaining this very important concept of how we're connected with the vine and what kind of fruit we should be bearing. And he says, so on one hand, it's not about you holding on to the vine, right? You don't get to become a branch by your own strength holding on to the vine. It's for freedom you've been, you have been set free, that Christ has set you free by his gospel and by his grace. Jesus said things like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Let that go. Be forgiven. You don't have to hold your shame and you don't have to perform. What a comforting, relaxing, refreshing idea, right? But Paul also says, that doesn't mean that we go, for freedom we've been set free. We get to do anything that we want then. Because Paul points out, no, 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 that's not the case. Because the problem is what you want, what your desires, what you think you want, and what you think will bring about flourishing is actually twisted by sin itself. So your desires are deceiving you. This is what he says. You were called to freedom, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve and love one another. So he brings up this idea of the flesh. The flesh is what he's talking about, our sinful nature, our our desires, our ways of thinking that let me tell you what true fruit and life is is, and uh, and what flourishing is, and it's, it's fulfilling the desires of my heart. This is the theology and the morality of our day. This is today that says our desires and our wants and the things that we think are right are the true triumph of humanity and the standard of all morality and behavior and action. How are we going to save the world? Be true to yourself. How are you going to live flourishing? Follow your dreams, right? What, what you have, the desires of your heart, physically, spiritually, sexually, anything at all, you follow the desires of your heart. Paul says, no, see guys, that's the problem. Your desires are leading you astray. You don't realize that your desires have been twisted by sin itself. And so we have to look to the word of God to say, God, you need to teach us what is right. You need to teach us what is good. You need to teach it. It's not about me finding my inner light and becoming the best person that I can be. It's me yielding to the revealed goodness of God. And that as he works through me, then I'm going to bear what is actual fruit and not wild grapes. Right? This is what Paul is saying. Don't satisfy the flesh. Rather, just like there's all this juxtaposition right, of chaff and trees um, and good grapes and bad grapes, he is saying there's the flesh and there's the spirit. And he, and he get, makes a list of some of the things that come out. What kind of, what kind of fruit is born by the, uh, by the flesh or the spirit? And he says this in verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So he says, 
This is the difference. Your heart is actually going to be shifted. This is actually prophecy from Jeremiah, where, where God said, I'm going to write my laws on your heart. Rather than an external tablet that you have to follow, I want to change your desires so you actually long for godly things. That that's what you want to do in your life. And so if you jump down to verse 19, he says, here's what, here's what it looks like when you follow the flesh. The works, remember that word, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. Right? Like, I don't hear anybody reading that list and going, we need more of that. Right? Like, can we have some more rivalries, please? More strife is what would make the world better, right? This is, the, this is the works of the flesh, and he makes an important point. He's saying, this is our effort. This is, this is when, we, when we say, I'm going to pursue the desires of my own heart. When I think my desires are moral law and what goodness really is, this is what results. Contrast that to the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, the thing that is born naturally when you, are, when you are changed, when you are made into the kind of plant that bears fruit, this is what naturally comes out of us from the Spirit of God working through us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, those things we can look at and go, yes, right? Like, we need more of all of that. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? I mean, there, like, there's a recognition. We need more of this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things we can see just intuitively even in the image of God that is within us. It should ring a bell within us to say this this is what we want to see the world to be. And Paul is helping us see this does not come out of fulfilling the desires of our flesh, but out of walking with the Spirit of God, who's the one who created all good things. This is the fruit that we are called to bear. So we are going to spend time in these nine different words over the course of the next nine weeks. And the, the point of this is to say all of the things that we've talked about, the grand story of redemption from garden to garden, the metaphors that God has given to us, the tree by the river that doesn't wither, that all of this, this is the goodness of God that exists coming into the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And that if we are to be people of God, that this is what should be manifested in our life. So in other words, this is what it's all about. This is what, this is what all of this is about. Well, how do, we, how do we know God? How can we ever know that there is a God? Because we can know Jesus and through faith and trust in him receive grace. And what should we be as a people? What is good person? What is, what is going to change the world? What is righteousness? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that God wants to bring about these things in our lives. Now, the point that we're going to make over here, and I think that Paul is making here too, is that although this is not salvation by effort, we do participate in the sense that you can cultivate fruit. 
right? Um, that uh, you can, you add fertilizer, you, you have the better the, the conditions that they're in, the more fruit they will be, then that we can participate in this by, we don't have to just lay passively by and hope that the Spirit does something in us, but that when we long for um, and remain in the vine, that this fruit starts to come out. That when we remain in his word, Psalm 1 says the reason you're a tree is because you're meditating on the word day and night and longing after God's way of being and that we're pursuing that. And we will start to see these amazing things happen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I pray by the end of the time that we have finished going through these passages that you will be able to recite those things, those fruit, because you are longing for those in your life. And we're going to ask the questions of how are we participating in God in these things? And, and where are we actually pursuing our flesh and the desires of our flesh and, and, and asking the Holy Spirit to work within us to change our very hearts? Wouldn't it be amazing if this is the fruit that we would show in abundance here at Redeemer. If someone asked you, oh, you go to that church, Redeemer, describe Redeemer for me. What is your church like? And you go, oh, easy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If this is who we are as the people of God, we could revolutionize the world's understanding of who Christ is and what the church is, and we could bring the healing to the world that it so desperately needs. And the only way that that comes about is not by our own actions, but us remaining in the vine and the life of God flowing through us out into the world. That's who we are called to be. That's what discipleship is. That's what, that's what the church is. That's what this is all about. And so, friends, we're going to focus on the fruit of the Spirit, praying for those things in abundance in our lives and in this place corporately, that we may see the glory of God and the flourishing of others as we remain connected to the vine. Pray with me. God, you are amazing. I mean, you, you speak to us out of our basic needs of we know we have to eat good things to, to live lives that are healthy and flourishing. And you have said, yeah, I'm that vine. Uh, I'm the source of life for you so that you can bear fruit that is beautiful and glorious and serves others as well. Lord, help us to be that. Where we are trapped in pursuing our own desires, where we've been deceived by our own desires, we need you to work within us to change our hearts and our minds because we don't even know where we're deceived. And so, Lord, give us hearts that long for you, long to remain in the vine, and long to bear the fruit of your spirit. May we see it in our lives individually, our life corporately together as the church, and may we see it more and more in the world as we do your work of ministry. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.